You're going to love this. Just love it. And this time we may mean it. You will love it. Maybe. Maybe not. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on 90.7 FM KPFK in LA. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM Queso in Cozy Cottage Grove. Out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster. Out in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. Up in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and yes, on Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com, joining you once again for another thrilling action-packed adventure that we like to call the Bradcast. Uh, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, whenever you may be tuning in. I'm just glad you're doing so. Uh, and uh, good evening, good afternoon, good morning to you too, Desi Doyen. Hey! Thought I'd say hello well, before hey. I get into this. Uh, nothing but good <laughs> news, almost. Almost nothing but good news today. I know that's uh, outrageous. I know you're not supposed to, uh, you know, focus on good news on talk radio after all. You're supposed to outrage people. So uh, you can be outraged by the fact that we've got nothing but good news today. Well, not nothing but. but uh, well, that's something but to be outraged near. about. Darn good near. news. See, I know. <laughs> uh, here to join us for some of those good news, for some of that good news in a little bit will be Kevin Drum of Mother Jones. But first, uh, here's a bit of good news beginning in Cuba. In a landmark thaw to the decades-long Cold War between the U.S. and Cuba, Barack Obama on Monday became the first U.S. president in more than 50 years to visit the island nation. Cuban President Raul Castro called on Obama to lift longstanding U.S. trade and other restrictions as he and Obama gave a joint press conference, which was somewhat strained and tense at times, I thought. But they both pledged to move forward with normalizing relations between Cuba and its longtime Cold War era foe. That would be us. This is a new day, Obama said, standing next to Castro after their meeting at Havana's Palace of the Revolution. Castro praised Obama's recent steps to relax controls on Cuba as positive, but deemed them insufficient. He called anew for the U.S. to return its naval base at Guantanamo Bay to Cuba. Well, that'd be nice. And to lift the U.S. trade embargo. That, too, would be nice. Uh, and it would help uh, it would help the U.S. It would help a lot of manufacturers here in the U.S. But of course, 
Republicans are against it. Uh, Obama came to uh, Cuba pledging to press its leaders on human rights and political freedoms and vowing that the mere fact of a visit by an American leader would promote those values on the island. Castro worked to turn the tables on Obama by saying Cuba found it inconceivable for a government to fail to ensure health care, education, food, and social security for its people, a clear reference to the U.S., in, uh, in return, Obama said he had raised very serious differences that the U.S. has with Cuba on democracy and human rights, but portrayed those difficult conversations as a prerequisite to closer relations. Crediting Cuba for making progress as a nation, Obama said part of normalizing relations between the two countries means, quote, we discuss these differences directly. Well, imagine that. Diplomacy instead of violence and war. What? The U.S. not using bombs to spread the word of love and peace and liberty and open markets? Unheard of. Impeach. I'm sure the calls will uh, will go on to uh, impeach Obama for daring to talk, daring to have uh, communication with Cuba after 50 years. Oh, and the policy there was going so well. Okie doke. Uh, a quick update on uh, what we had talked about uh, on our last program. I think it was our I'm losing track of everything uh, where uh, Adams County, Illinois, saw voters turned away by the thousands across the county last Tuesday, March 5th, on the March 15 election because they ran out of paper ballots. And instead of, you know, just having poll judges photocopy more, they told people, well, give us your number, we'll come back in a couple of hours, or we'll call you when we get uh, fresh ballots in. Now, uh, you'll recall we spoke with the um, Adams County State's Attorney, John Barnard, on our last program about what was going on and about this extraordinary decision made by the... Uh, by the court there to extend voting, even though it had already ended last Tuesday, to add an extra week of voting to allow all of those people who were turned away to come back and vote. If they had evidence that they actually showed up at the polling place, they would have signed in in some of the polling places with the electronic poll book. So there would be evidence of that or they would sign an affidavit under penalty of perjury stating that, yes, in fact, they were unable to vote because of the ballot shortages. Well, so this was extended for this week, an extra week of voting. When we spoke with the uh, uh, state's attorney, John Barnard, on this program just after he was out of court and just after he, he uh, had a victory, he was the one who came up with this idea. He was so outraged. And by the way, I didn't mention it last week, but he's a Republican. He was so outraged that uh, people were turned away from the polls because of uh, this government failure that he said, we have to come up with something. And he didn't know if it would hold up in court, he said, but it you know, doesn't hurt to try. The ballots would be segregated, according to the judge who agreed to, to this extra week of voting. The ballots would be segregated in case there was challenges. And in fact, there were that day just challenged. He had just gotten out of court where the uh, state AG had challenged, uh, had appealed the decision by the judge. Uh, the judge denied that appeal, but the state AG appealed it up to the fourth district court, uh, fourth district appellate court in Springfield. And late on Friday afternoon, they stayed the order by the Adams County Circuit Judge uh, Chet Val that would have extended, uh, would have allowed extended voting this week. So for now. No voting again in Adams County. Those people who were turned away because of ballot shortages are just currently right now out of luck. 
Barnard uh, has said that uh, he expects the 4th District will give them an opportunity to be heard on this issue with dispatch, he said, probably the beginning of this week, given the timeline. Uh, so that's where we are. That's uh, that's not great news, although I must say I, I was not sure about that rem- remedy. It seems odd after results have been uh, released in the county to then allow people to go and vote. Uh, but I certainly understood what he was trying to get at, and I was certainly outraged by the fact that people were kept from voting because there was no paper ballots when they could have simply been photocopied. And I've been speaking with the county clerk who made that decision over the weekend. Uh, Chuck Van Vertlo is his name. Uh, as I said uh, on the show when we talked about it, he seems like a very nice guy. He hasn't been there long. I don't believe this was done on purpose. I believe he just screwed up by underestimating the uh, the, the number of ballots that would be needed. Why he didn't tell people to uh, tell the uh, polling places to, you know, at the churches, the community center to go see, go out to Kinko's, go into the office there. Maybe they've got a copier you can use. Why he didn't do that, that's unclear. He told me uh, via email, he said, look, I'm new to this. He obviously feels terrible about it. Uh, he said that, uh, you know, next time they may check into this. He's, it's unclear whether the poll judges would have had access to photocopy machines there, but they were photocopying like crazy, he says, at the uh, at the county and sending those out to the polling places as quickly as they could. That resulted in about 1,162, about exactly 1,162 paper ballots that he was then a photocopied uh, ballots, uh, blank ballots that they photocopied and people used them to vote. And then they were going to, as he has said last week, remake those ballots onto official ballot paper that could then be run through the optical scan computers, which is nuts to remake the ballots. I find offensive. Uh, John Barnard uh, joined me in finding that to be offensive. The good news is um, he is now, uh, Chuck Van Vertlo is now looking at hand counting those paper ballots, which should have been done in the first place. Uh, and I have uh, put him in touch with uh, uh, Virginia Martin, who's the uh, election director from Columbia County, New York, where they hand count every paper ballot. Uh, even though the state requires them to do an op scan, they won't certify an election out there. She and her uh, uh, Republican uh, counterpart, the uh, co-election director out there, they won't certify an election unless they hand count all of the paper ballots publicly. I put them in touch because uh, Chuck uh, Van Vertlo told me, he said, you know, I wish there was somebody here who who could tell me about these things. Uh, the last person, uh, you know, when they left, they left and he's been figuring it out on the fly. These are our election officials figuring it out on the fly. So I have now put him in touch with Virginia Martin. She is helping him uh, understand the process that they use to hand count paper ballots. Hopefully, at least that much will happen in Adams County. So there'll be, uh, well, at least 1,162 paper ballots that we will know reflect that have been counted in a way that actually reflects the voter intent, aside from all of the ones that have been put into the optical scan computers, which may or may not reflect the voter intent. No way to know unless you hand count them. Have I said that before? Have I mentioned that before? Okay. See, I got away from the good news, didn't I? Well, there's some good news in there. They, they're going to be hand counting yeah. the paper ballots. So there's that. Uh, the the photocopies in any event. Uh, here's some good news uh, for Democrats. If Donald Trump becomes the Republican Party's nominee, Utahns 
would vote for a Democrat for president in November for the first time in more than 50 years, according to a new Deseret News KSL poll. Utah is, uh, they have a, uh, a, a caucus on Tuesday. Arizona will have a primary. And uh, the, the, the fact that uh, the so-called red Utah could go blue is kind of mind-blowing if, uh, if you believe this poll. Uh, I believe Donald Trump could lose Utah, said former Utah Governor Mike Levitt, a top campaign advisor to the GOP's 2012 nominee, Mitt Romney. If you lose Utah as a Republican, there is no hope, he said. Uh, but here's the interesting thing. So, yes, in fact, Hillary Clinton would beat Donald Trump 38 percent to 36 percent by two points, according to this uh, this new poll out of Utah. Utah. Utah would go Democratic. 38 to 36, Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump by two points. Here's another interesting point from the same poll. Bernie Sanders beats Donald Trump 48% to 37%. Yes, that's right. She beats Donald Trump by two points in Utah. Bernie Sanders beats Donald Trump by 11 points, according to this, uh, to this new poll. Uh, amazing. Also uh, surprising, according to the uh, Deseret News, is the number of Utahns who said they wouldn't vote at all if Trump were on the ballot. 16% said they'd skip the election if Trump and Clinton were their only ballot choices. 16% wouldn't bother to vote at all. However, if Sanders was on the ballot with Donald Trump, just 9% said they wouldn't vote. Who's the most electable one again? Keep reminding me. What? Why? Why is Hillary Clinton more electable than than Bernie Sanders? Both uh, Texas Senator Ted Cruz and Ohio Governor John Kasich would beat either Democratic candidate in Utah, according to this poll in a head-to-head -head, uh, matchup. There, however, Sanders came closest against Ted Cruz, with 39% of Utah backing Sanders to 53% for Ted Cruz. So uh, Sanders does better against uh, Trump, against Cruz, at least in the Republican, the very Republican state of Utah, at least what was regarded as a Republican state. The Democratic candidates fare even better against Trump among uh, Utah's many unaffiliated independent voters. Uh, Clinton would win Utah by 17 points among the unaffiliated voters, while Sanders would see a 36-point victory if the election were held today. For the record, Utah has not voted for a Democratic candidate uh, since uh, then-President Lyndon Johnson was running against Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater back in 1964. Speaking of Bernie Sanders... The, uh, he has won the Democrats abroad presidential primary, which took place uh, over the weekend, or at least the results were added up finally over the weekend. He defeated Hillary Clinton by a more than two to one margin, 69 percent to 31 percent. Where? This is the Democrats abroad presidential ah. primary. Democrats, uh, voters who don't necessarily uh, count any particular state as their home. They, expats. Expats, right. But they're uh, allowed to vote. 
Bernie Sanders destroyed her two to one. He ended up picking up five delegates overall in the Democrats abroad presidential primary. Uh, He won nine pledged delegates to Clinton's four. Of course, she still leads in the overall pledged delegate count by about uh, a little bit more than 300 delegates. That's not super delegates. That's actual pledged delegates. Uh, Although Bernie Sanders now, uh, his campaign is eagerly citing a number of upcoming states in a row that they feel, that they seem to be feeling quite confident about, mostly out west. One of them, uh, Seattle. Seattle saw the largest political rally ever since Barack Obama blew into town back in early 2008. Some uh, amazing numbers here. Let's see. The crowd on Sunday night at the Seattle Center, which the Seattle Center confirmed uh, with the Sanders campaign estimates, was 10,312 inside the key arena. 5,500 were outside, plus 1,500 who could not get in. Uh, just amazing. Sanders has been holding these kind of big rallies, three in Washington on Sunday alone, while Clinton was spending uh, the past week in uh, high-budget fundraisers, according to the Seattle Post-Intelligencer here. Uh, So these uh, upcoming races, uh, we've got Idaho, Utah, and Arizona on Tuesday. And uh, Washington's caucus is on Saturday and then there and along with caucuses in Alaska and Hawaii for the Democrats. Sanders campaign seems to feel be feeling quite confident about all of those upcoming races. He could win. You could see, you know, last week they were saying Hillary Clinton won all five races on March 15th. You could see uh, Sanders winning all six races that are coming up here. Sanders uh, continues to outfund, outraise Hillary Clinton. She raised uh, he raised forty three and a half million last month compared with just 30 million for Hillary Clinton. Uh, He's got a nationwide network of small donors that he's quite proud of and uh, that uh, is uh, continuing to go in his favor, despite the fact that the corporate media seems to be announcing, oh, it's all but over. Hillary Clinton is uh, is the uh, is the nominee, according to the uh, corporate media if if they even talk about the democratic race at all of course they're usually talking about donald trump the state democratic party in the meanwhile in washington uh, made itself the object of giggles over the giant sanders rally says the seattle pi they uh the state party was hosting a goodbye potato feed for retiring u.s Congressman Jim McDermott on Sunday night at the Museum of History and Industry, the party sent out a cautionary note warning of, quote, an event at the Seattle Center, uh, predicting that it would attract 5,000 people and possibly tie up traffic nearby. The paper goes on to say that rarely in the annals of politics has a political group so lowballed a crowd estimate. That was the Democrat, the state Democratic Party. Guess they ain't much paying attention to what their own voters are doing and uh, their own candidates are doing. All right. So there's a there's a bit of good news, at least for Sanders fans. Uh, now, before we uh, get to a break and to uh, Kevin Drum, we, we had interviewed last week on this program Jen Sanko about her new documentary film, The Brainwashing of My Dad, about the rise of right wing media in this country and how it has affected people like her father 
and uh, millions of others, not just turning them towards Republicans, but making them furious and angry about it. Outraged, in fact. The next day, after we interviewed her, Rush Limbaugh talked about her and the film on her on his program. He said, uh, first, can I ask any of you, how many of you would produce a documentary slamming your own father? How many of you would attempt to get noticed and maybe earn some money by producing a document designed to humiliate and embarrass your own father? Well, that's what we have here, said Rush. Actually, no, that's not what they have there at all. Clearly, he did not bother to look at the film at all before going on to bash it. Of course, it bashes the hell out of him with actual facts. Instead, he just went back to uh, exactly what Jen Sanko talks about in the film, how the repetition of the right succeeds in actually brainwashing Americans. These people are sick said Rush Limbaugh. I'm reading from his transcript. They are dangerous. They are close-minded. They are not tolerant, open-minded, loving, harmless people they want us to believe. They're the architects of political correctness. They're the architects of censorship. They are the ones who want to take your constitutional rights away from you. They are the ones who want to make you an economic serf dependent on them for your day-to-day -day living. They are the ones who hold you in contempt, they're the ones who think you do not have the capability, the competence, the ambition to succeed on your own without them. They're the ones calling you racist, sexist, bigot, homophobes. They're the ones that create race wars in this country. They are the ones that create economic division. They specialize in creating division. <laughs> After all of that, they specialize in creating division, the American left, liberalism, the Democrat Party. Exactly what it was that Jen Senko accused him of doing. And yes, that is what Rush Limbaugh does. That is what a lot of folks in talk radio do. They outrage you with outrageous facts that aren't really facts at all. Uh, and it's not just talk radio. It's also the corporate media, the non-right-wing media. They are very happy when you are outraged because that means you'll be watching them. We will talk about that right after this with my guest Kevin Drum from Mother Jones. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Don't be mad. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. We hear a lot about war or hurricanes that hit our shore. We hear a lot about hard times and a good deal more about the crimes that make the front pages of our 
our news. Yeah. But all that does is sing the blues about America. Yeah, we wouldn't want to do that. Now, what are the good things in our lives about the men who love their wives? Yeah. Who take their kids when they go fishing, spend their working days just wishing to make things better. Yeah, you tell them, John Wayne. A fireman who climbs a tree and sets a little kitten free. All right. Okay. <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. There was uh, John Wayne telling us everything is fine. We needn't worry. Uh, things are great in this country. Uh, I know. I, I know. It's it's not. Uh, it's just not done. Frankly, on, in talk radio, we're supposed to be outraged. We're supposed to outrage everybody all of the time about everything. That's the right wing formula, anyway. And to be fair, if you can find any progressive talk shows out on the airwaves anywhere out there, like right here. Uh, that is something that that we do as well, uh, though hopefully we don't simply make up reasons to outrage people on the premise that outraged people are our stock in trade, as they are for so many uh, on the right and right wing uh, radio, right wing media. We talked about it last week with uh, Jen Sanko about her new documentary, uh, The Brainwashing of My Dad and how the right wing has just, you know, not not only misinformed America, but has succeeded in absolutely outraging them often about things that are completely made up. Uh, I prefer to inform people uh, outraged or otherwise, uh, as I continue to make it my mission to inform the electorate so that they can make smart choices at the ballot box. Uh, that seems to me, anyway, to be the reason why a free press exists in the first place and why my industry is the only one actually named as having such freedoms in our Constitution. And yet the corporate media and God knows right wing talk radio, but even the non right wing media as well seems unable to do the, the job of informing the electorate without ginning up anger and outrage, often where much less exists than is portrayed by that media. The reason everything is so crazy this year on both the Republican and the Democratic side, we are constantly told by the mainstream corporate media, is that voters are angry. They are furious and they're taking it out this year on establishment politicians. Well, maybe. But uh, are Americans really any angrier this year than they pretty much are every election year uh, these days? And, and, and what exactly are they so angry about in the first place? With all that's going on, both in this nation and around the world, uh, there, yes, is much to be bothered by, much to be worried about and, and even angry about. But there's also quite a bit to celebrate for those willing to pay attention. Well, so argues on a somewhat consistent basis, uh, Mother Jones blogger Kevin Drum. For many years prior to that, you might know Kevin uh, from uh, his work at running the Washington Monthly and their fantastic political animal blog. And before that, when I first got to know him, he was uh, known as the Cal Pundit out here in California, where he is credited, by the way, with pioneering the beloved blogosphere tradition known as Friday cat blogging. Kevin has been covering politics and everything else that interests him uh, at uh, the Progressive uh, magazine and their website and inside their pages of Mother Jones since 2008, and he joins us now on the broadcast. Hey, Kevin, great to talk to you, my friend. Nice to be here, Brad. Uh, okay, well, you, what I love about you, Kevin, among other things, is that you'll often try 
to bring common sense to important issues, even when your readers may not want to hear that common sense. You, you have a post up today, for example, explaining how uh, while lead levels are higher than they certainly should be in Flint, Michigan, the fact is we have similarly high lead levels in other parts of the country. And with too much focus on only what happened in Flint, you argue uh, that uh, it'll it'll lead people to believe once that's fixed that the problem is taken care of uh, elsewhere. Do do I do I accurately characterize your your concern on that particular issue? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about uh, outrage and anger, yeah, uh, you know, Flint is an obvious place to be outraged and, and angry about. But on the other hand, you know, we should recognize that uh, that we did finally make progress in Flint, and the lead levels are down, and we've got. You know, we've got levels that high or more all the time, you know, not just for a year, but all the time in a lot of other places. And, yeah, I would like to see that get a lot more attention and maybe maybe get a little bit less attention on Flint and more attention on other places that need as much help as they do. I, I, is it fair to say that sometimes the outrage itself, the story of the outrage, sort of overtakes uh, the actual facts on the ground and the actual issues that do deserve concern, but they get obscured by the, by the noise and the shouting and the uh, often ginned-up outrage, whether it's from the media or from the politicians themselves? I, I think so. It, uh, you know, what happens is, is that it feeds on itself sometimes. And you take mm-hmm. a situation where you have every reason to be outraged. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, use Flint again as an example. Every reason to be outraged. Um, but then you just keep going and going and going. Even after the problem has finally started to get addressed, things are getting better. And it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't bother me so much except, you know, I look at the people in Flint and I think, you know, their water by now, I think, is, is actually in pretty good shape. They can go back to leading normal lives, and, and they should go back to leading normal lives if, if that's safe. But, you know, the, the outrage has gotten so big and, and, and enveloped so much that it feels like nobody, nobody feels safe telling them that. And so, you know, they're not taking showers, and they're drinking bottled water, and they're doing all this stuff that I think probably a lot of them don't need to do. So, you know, it matters to bring some perspective to this stuff once in a while. I, you know, I bring up all of that uh, because there were a number of posts you filed uh, from last week that I think are well worth noting here, because not only do they fly in the face of the conventional, at least some conventional wisdom, but also because, uh, you know, particularly in the middle of a, <laughs> a raucous campaign season, and that's an understatement, I suspect, a raucous campaign season for both Republicans and uh, Democrats, and particularly with a, a media industry desperate to sort of save itself and, you know, retain listeners and viewers and readers, it, it's easy to lose sense of reality amidst all the sort of ginned up outrage in the media machine. And to that end, <clears throat> you offered a post last week headlined, Say it with me, voters aren't any angrier that this year than usual. Really, Kevin Drum? They're they're not angrier this year because uh, than usual because that doesn't seem to be what they're telling us on all the media outlets. Who says, you know, that the reason uh, Trump is doing so well, even the reason uh, Bernie Sanders is doing so well, is because voters are absolutely furious, like has never been seen before in this country. And um, you know, I think anybody who's been watching elections in the United States for a while mm-hmm. knows that we hear this every four years. <laughs> Every four years, the, the voters are angrier than they've ever been. And, you know, this year, you know, we've obviously seen some of that. I, you know, there is some anger out there. But, you know, that particular post you're looking at was comparing this year to uh, 
you know, comparing uh, Donald Trump mm-hmm. to George Wallace in 1968. And, you know, you think that Donald Trump's rallies have gotten a little bit violent, you know, been a few arrests. Mm-hmm. It's nothing compared to what was going on with George Wallace back in 1968. And, you know, I don't think it's because there was a lot of anger then, especially, or a lot of anger now. I think the difference is the people. You know, there's always some anger out there. And in 1968, you had a guy, George Wallace, who, who mm-hmm. could take advantage of it. This year, you've got a guy, Donald Trump, who's feeding on it. And I think it's really it's the candidates more than it is the people themselves. You've got a candidate who can, who can really gin up the anger that's already out there and make it seem worse than it's been before. So it's it, it, the anger is there. The anger is always there among a small percentage of the people. But it, it, the difference is the politicians, George Wallace in 68 and now Donald Trump in 2016, who are able to capitalize that, uh, capitalize on that anger and, and, and put it at the core of their own uh, their own campaigns. And it makes it appear as if suddenly the electorate is angrier than than usual. Yes. And, and, and there's more to it than that, too. I think take a look at um, take a look at the economy mm-hmm. right now, and you know God knows there are a lot of people who have every reason to be you know blue collar workers have every reason to be angry that their wages have been stagnant for you know for more than a decade for example, mm-hmm. but you know what we've got now is a Republican Party and of course they want to say the the economy is terrible and that's that's what the uh, opposing party does mm-hmm. and then normally you would have the party in power the Democrats in this case saying the economy is great, and they'd fight it out. But instead, this year, you've got the Republicans saying the economy is terrible, and you've got Democrats saying pretty much the same thing because they don't want to sound dismissive. They don't want to sound like they think the economy is just really going great guns. So you've got both parties saying that the economy is in bad shape. Mm-hmm. And we all know that in the, in the media, if you've got both parties saying something, then it suddenly it gets, you're sort of allowed to say it. Right. right? It's not controversial anymore. And they can just take it for granted. And the truth is that if you look, you know, if you just look at the numbers, nothing special. You just look at unemployment, inflation, growth, all the, you know, wage growth, mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah, we could be doing better. But you know what? We're actually, we've actually recovered from the recession reasonably well. And people are getting back to work. Wages are going up. Um, it's not the greatest economy in the world, but it's not bad. Well, we're actually in pretty good shape. And and we'll go through some of those. We'll go through your top ten list of things that are going great in America, and and your intolerably optimistic outlook, uh, Kevin Drum. Uh, but before we do, uh, on the Democratic side. Uh, since you mentioned that, we do see anger at the system that, uh, you know, Bernie uh, is, is capitalizing on, that the, uh, the system is rigged, uh, the economy, our elections. Uh, he's, you know, brilliantly focusing in his campaign on that. Is that anger somehow uh, more more righteous or more accurate s- somehow because it's based on reality than what you see on the Republican side? and? And even so, even if it is, is it any more different than what we have seen in other presidential campaigns going back decades? Well, I think, um, I think Bernie's been more successful this year than a lot of candidates have been before. I mean, we have seen that sort of thing before, but, uh, but Bernie's been very successful at, uh, at getting out there and, and, and uh, you know, really giving it a voice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, I think the answer is, yeah, there are some things to be angry about. Um, you know, if you're, a, if you're a student and you've got you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars of of, of of student loan debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know that's going to make you angry. You can't afford to buy a house. You're thirty years old. Your parents could buy a house when they were thirty, and you can't. Um, 
So there, there are reasons out there. And, you know, certainly the fact that even with the, um, even with the recovery from the recession that we've seen, uh, you know, productivity gains, growth gains, income gains mm-hmm. are still mostly going to the top 1% and not to the rest of us. I mean, absolutely, Bernie is right to bring that up. Absolutely, you know, 99% of us are mm-hmm. right to be angry about that. You point out uh, quite a few points on which the uh, in uh, what's this uh, the headline uh, America's Americans aren't anxious about the economy. So what are they anxious about? And you point out a number of uh, uh, positive economic uh, points as far as you know uh, uh, job openings are up, uh, firings are down, uh, even real hourly earnings are somewhat up in recent years. Gasoline prices are over a cliff, uh, and yet uh, you do find something that you identify something with some data that you, you found in, in a paper uh, concern. Well, that you say does actually line up with a very good reason for Trump voters, at least, uh, to be angry. Would you like to explain that? Yeah, sure. And I'll add something else to it. Now, yeah. it's, not just, it's not just sort of objective data about unemployment and inflation and so forth. If you look at surveys of just asking people, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. And how do you feel about your finances? Mm-hmm. Uh, what you'll find is that they'll just tell you. And what they say is, it's, you know, it's about as good as it was back in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, they've, they've recovered, and they feel about as good as they did back in 2003 or four. Um, but, yeah, if you take a look at Donald Trump, the conventional wisdom out there is, you know, you've got all these blue-collar workers who are angry at the economy and angry at China for taking away their jobs and so forth. And yet, you know, what you find, if you actually take a closer look at it, is, you know, Trump isn't just getting support from, you know, blue-collar workers. Mm-hmm. He's getting... He's getting support from all over the place, from all education levels, from, from mm-hmm. men, from women, from old, from young, from well-educated to, to not so well-educated. The one thing that seems to uh, bring them all together is also something that nobody really likes to talk about very much, and that is racism and xenophobia. What you find is that Trump's voters correlate very highly, very strongly, with people who are you know, not happy with having foreigners in the country, not happy with illegal immigration or even legal immigration, who are not especially sympathetic toward Hispanics or blacks or any other minority group. And those are, by and large, the kind of people who are more likely to support uh, Donald Trump. And we had spoken on this show uh, a few weeks back about uh, another issue that that they were able to identify that, that they said actually even more than racial animus necessarily uh, identifies uh, or predicts rather someone will be, who will be a Trump voter, and that was uh, their love of authoritarianism. And there was, uh, you know, evidence to back that up, empirical data as well. In your case, you looked at the... Uh, the racial animus score that was put out by this, uh, this, this I think it was a new paper, and you were able to plot how states with higher racial animus uh, also had a higher turnout of uh, for Donald Trump in the popular vote. You can see it in this uh, this actual chart. That's that's right. And the funny thing is, it wasn't a new paper. It was actually a paper written a few years ago. Oh, okay. And I thought that would be interesting. I thought I could look at something that wasn't aimed at Donald Trump. This paper had nothing to do with, with Trump. Mm-hmm. I thought, okay, but this is, this is interesting. This will give me 
scores for the states, and I was curious to see how they would line up with how those states voted um, uh, for Trump. So there was about 20 states in there that so far had, had held primaries and had a vote. And, and yeah, when you just, you just take it and you just, you just plot it out, and sure enough, yep. it's, uh, you get a, you know, a, a, pretty, a pretty good, strong relationship showing that in states that had higher racial animus scores, um, you also had higher votes for Donald Trump. Yep, you sure do. Uh, I And I guess we shouldn't be surprised, but seeing it like that in black and white, it's like, boy, boom, that arrow goes right up. Uh, the, the more racial animus, the, the higher the uh, popular vote for Trump. All right, well, speaking uh, speaking with Kevin Drum, blogger of uh, Mother jo- at MotherJones.com. All right, speaking of things uh, that you describe as uh, going great in America, Kevin Drum, one of your readers recently requested that you reprint a list of all of those things that you believe are going great. You posted what you described as the top ten. Let's go through. Uh, let's go through some of those one by one, and I'll try to uh, offer the. Uh, uh, argument against them or the uh, conventional political wisdom. I'll tell you why you're why you're completely wrong, and then you can tell me in turn how I'm actually completely wrong. All right, let's do it. <laughs> let's go through it. Uh, all right, number one. Uh, number one, unemployment <laughs> is down to four point nine percent, and I'll add to that. You can take a look at a different unemployment rate, which includes if you look at the unemployment rate that includes people who are looking for work but uh, but not finding it, or people who are employed part time and would like to go full time. It's higher. It's it's about nine percent, but that's even that one is only about one percent higher than its normal rate. So there's still a little bit of, of of slack in the labor market. But aren't these bad jobs? Aren't these jobs that uh, pay minimum wage or less? And and the recovery has taken while it might be uh, unemployment might be four point nine percent now. It has taken so much longer than it used to to come out of recessions. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, this was this was one of the deepest, longest recessions we've had. Um, you know, ever since 1990, our recessions have been, or I should say our recoveries mm-hmm. from recessions, have been more and more jobless. We recover, but jobs don't recover as fast as the rest of the economy. And that happened this time as well. But uh, we have finally gotten there. Yeah, it took, uh, you know, what's it been now? Uh, uh, eight years. Yep. Seven, eight years. And, but we did finally get there. And like I said, we still have some ways to go. There's still a little bit of unemployment left there that's higher than it used to be. But it's, you know, at this point, we're talking about levels that are one or two percent higher than normal, not five or ten points higher than normal. And that's oddly enough, that's not discussed much, I think, even on the Democratic side. And I guess because, you know, they don't want you know people to come back with them the way I did with you that, oh, these are, are you know, not uh, it took too long to get here. These jobs are not as good as they used to be, all of which is is true. But we should keep an eye on uh, how far we at least have come in the past eight years. All right. Go to number two. Number two, inflation, 1.4%. Um, there are some of us, people like me, who, for technical reasons, would actually like to see inflation higher. Mm-hmm. But I think most people most people like low inflation. They like stable inflation. And uh, we've got it. The uh, inflation rate for food is even lower than that. So... Uh- well, you, you uh, made the you're right, you you made the argument. Why would why uh, that I might have made? Why would you like to see uh, inflation be a little bit higher? Well, just in general, um, a higher inflation rate allows you to generate more economic growth. It allows the Federal Reserve to generate more economic growth. Um, now, you know the truth is the the Fed doesn't seem like it's inclined to do anything along those lines. Mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of a moot point right now. But uh, but they could they could generate more growth, probably more wage growth as well if they were to, um, to try to uh, tolerate a higher inflation rate. Yeah. But nonetheless, um, you know, normally 
what you're worried about is that inflation is outpacing wages, and that's not happening right now. Inflation is low, and wages are up. Um, not a lot, but they are up some. All right, number three on your Economic top ten list of things that are going great in America. And by the way, these aren't funny at all, Kevin. Number three on the top ten list. Go ahead. No, no, there's not much humor here. Number three, economic growth. GDP growth is 2.4%. Uh, again, you know, this is not the greatest growth rate we've ever had, but 2.4% is very respectable. And one of the things I like to point out to people mm-hmm. is that 2.4% is, is better than you see almost anywhere else, uh, you know, once you adjust for population and, and so forth, thing, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, our economy is doing overall better than Europe, better than China, way better than Russia, better than South America, better even than, uh, than, than you know, the countries that used to be called the Asian tigers, uh, you know, Korea, Japan, and, and so forth. Um, so we have recovered from the recession, and we'd like to have recovered better. But we've recovered better than just about um, any region of the world out there. So when Donald Trump tells us that we are getting killed by China, Japan, Mexico, they are destroying us, he tells us. Not so? Uh, he's crazy. Um, China's not destroying us. Japan's not destroying us. Mexico, a little bit. Okay. Um, a little bit. There's, um, you know, what a lot of people don't don't know right now is that you know, China had a huge manufacturing boom, and there's an obvious reason, right? I mean, they had a, you know they had a billion people, a billion mm-hmm. very low-paid people, and they were able to use that to build a big manufacturing sector. But you know, manufacturing today is not uh, that much cheaper in China than it is in the U.S. Uh, the U.S. actually has one of the most efficient manufacturing sectors in the world at the moment, mm. and um, we actually compete pretty well with China. We certainly compete well with Japan. Uh, Mexico is right next door, and Mexico does still have a lower labor costs than we do. So, um, so yeah, we do see some movement of factories and so forth to Mexico. All right. But well, uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not a big movement. Um, you know, you're talking about small numbers. And we'll get back to that uh, issue and Mexico at item number 10, but let's go to number four. Okay. Um, you know, every four years you hear that the price of gasoline is associated with how well people think things are going. Mm-hmm. Well, the price of gasoline, uh, in this post I have it at $1.81. Mm-hmm. That was a couple of weeks ago. This is basically as low as it's been in, in a decade. And I'll point out, of course, that's terrible news. That's a terrible thing for America because it means more people buy gas, fewer people buy electric cars. We burn more fossil fuels, uh, and that's destroying our planet. And I know yeah. I, I sound snarky when I say that, but, but that one I actually mean. Um, well, I, well, I, and I agree with you entirely on that. Uh, from a purely political point of view, it's good news for whoever's running for president. Yes, from the point of view of, of anything larger, it's, it's terrible news. <laughs> number five. Uh, number five is Obamacare. And you can say what you want about it. It's not, uh, it's not as much as I'd want. I'd love to have a universal health care system, uh, the kind of system that Bernie would like us to have. Mm-hmm. But the truth is that over the last uh, four years, 20 million people have gained health insurance. That is a lot of people who now can live their lives without having to worry about going bankrupt because they get some serious illness. And, you know, that's an issue that I've pointed out now for so many years when I hear so many people complaining about Obamacare, and for good reason, as you note. I mean, there are still a lot of people who are not covered at all, who can't get health insurance, uh, 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 many millions of them, it should be noted. 
because Republican governors, uh, Republican states were given the OK by the Supreme Court. That that section of Obamacare was gutted where they didn't have to uh, uh, make Medicaid available to people who would otherwise be eligible. A lot of those millions uh, who are not covered right now, I think, are caught in that particular loop. But nonetheless, a big payoff uh, to uh, private health insurance companies. Uh, some uh, Republicans love to argue that uh, out-of-pocket uh, that premiums are through the roof, out-of-pocket payments are through the roof. How do you respond, Kevin Drum? Uh, it's, it's just not the case. If you take, a, you know, all you have to do is look at the numbers, and what you see is that, uh, you know, out-of-pocket expenses have been going steadily up over the years, but they've been going up a few percent every year. It's a problem. It's a problem we need to address. But it's a it's a steady problem. Obamacare didn't change it in any way, and you know, as you said, you've got 20 million people who are covered now. If Republicans would, in red states would allow Medicaid to expand, you'd get another oh somewhere between five and ten million immediately mm. out of that. And yeah, you still have 10 or 15 million left that we need to keep working on, but. That's a lot of people who are covered that weren't before. Number six is one that I just don't hear very much coming from Republicans these days. They don't say this one out loud very often. Go ahead. No, number six, uh, the abortion the abortion rate has been declining for a long time, for decades. It's been going down, and uh, as of this year, it is now at the lowest rate since uh, since... Since the 70s, since Roe v. Wade was decided. And the pushback would be, of course, that's because Republicans have made it harder and harder to get abortions all over the country, and that's why the abortion rate has been declining. No, it's because uh, I'm going to skip down to number seven All right. Uh, briefly. Among teenagers, um, I'll just read this. Alcohol mm-hmm. use is down. Crime is down. Violent behavior is down. Illicit drug use is down. Sexual intercourse is down. Condom use is up. Pregnancy is down. Cigarette smoking is down. Now, you notice that three of those, um, they're not having sex as much. When they are having sex, they are using condoms more, and, and teenage girls are getting pregnant less. And that's, that's the biggest reason that the abortion rate is down. There are simply fewer unwanted pregnancies. You and your facts and paying attention to things and such. All right, number, number eight. <laughs> number eight, high school test scores. You, know, you hear all the time about how terrible education is. Uh-huh. And we certainly have issues we need to work on. It's a disaster. It Common Core. Common Core is destroying the country, uh, Kevin. I heard that. Yeah, and Common Core, yeah. of course, has barely even started anywhere. <laughs> I see. But over the last 20 years, if you take a look at, uh, at test scores, they're actually up. I mean, hardly anybody seems to know this. Test scores are up, both in math and in reading, and graduation rates are up as well. If anything, um, you know, the kids today are at least as well educated and quite possibly more educated than my generation and my parents' generation. All right, number nine. Number nine, we're getting towards the end here. Yes. Um, in number nine, everybody should be happy about this. In 2015, there were 22, 22 U.S. military fatalities in the Middle East. Wow. That's 22 too many. Right. But it's a whole lot less than the hundreds, uh, and I think even at the height, you know, even a, even mm-hmm. thousands per year that we were having during during the uh, during the Iraq War, and. You know, I think all of us on the left side of the aisle would like to see us out of the Middle East more uh, more conclusively than we are now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not hanging around in Afghanistan and so forth. But, you know, we are getting close to getting out, and 
22 is a very low number. And I and I understand we did lose uh, uh, someone today in uh, Iraq by uh, a rocket fire, as I understand it. But the argument, uh, what of the argument that, well, the reason that it's uh, so low, there's only two, uh, 22 U.S. Uh, military fatalities in the Middle East in 2015 is because now... We're using drone strikes all over the world, and we are still killing the same amount of people. We're just uh, taking fewer fatalities ourselves because of this uh, immoral way of, uh, of carrying out warfare in the Middle East. Uh, um, it's certainly true that using drones is a lot safer to American lives than sending American soldiers uh, into Iraq. Um, uh, absolutely. Um, we are not killing as many people as we were during the war. Drones, drones are killing people. Drones are a problem. Uh, but, uh, but no, if you, take, if you take a look at the numbers, um, you know, you, you look at drones, they're killing hundreds of people. You know, back during the height of the Afghanistan and Iraq war, you know, we were killing thousands, tens of thousands mm. of people. So, you know, a, a, as much as we dislike the, the, the drone warfare, there is a difference. It's not, it's not as deadly as, uh, as, as the warfare was you know, back during the Bush administration. All right, finally, number 10. We're, uh, we're running late, but let's get to uh, number 10, which uh, sort of returns us uh, to the issue of Mexico. What do you got, Kevin Drum? Well, despite the supposed anger over illegal immigration, um, illegal immigration has been down for seven straight years. The, um, you know, we still have illegal immigrants coming over the border, but we also have immigrants going back to Mexico. And if you net it all out, uh, we are actually having more people going back to Mexico than are coming to the U.S. So the net illegal uh, immigration population in the United States has gone down from 12 million to 11 million over the last few years. So, you know, we don't have people pouring over the border the way you hear from Donald Trump. What you actually see is kind of a trickle going in the other direction. And uh, how much of that is because uh, they are doing well in Mexico, going back to the, uh, you know, Trump, uh, Mexico is killing us. Is it because the economy is doing better there, and so there's not as much reason to come here, uh, particularly over the past, what is it, seven or eight years since the Great Recession? Yeah, that, that's part of the reason. Um, part of the reason is that, and part of the reason is, of course, a recession in the United States meant that economic opportunity here wasn't pulling them in as much. And it's also the truth that, uh, um, you know, and a lot of Hispanics are upset about this, as you know, mm -hmm. that uh, President Obama has been, uh, you know, fairly tough on, on deporting yep. uh, immigrants into the U.S. and has actually been fairly tough. He hasn't built a wall, but he's been fairly tough on, on illegal immigration in general. That has, that has cost him politically, um, but the result has been uh, uh, a lower level of illegal immigration than we had in the past. And indeed, I would not I would argue that that is not necessarily something that is going great. Uh, I'd love to see more people uh, wanting to come uh, to our shores. So but uh, the point is well taken a top 10 list of things that are going great in America that are never discussed, almost never discussed in either the corporate media or in our politics. Uh, got just a, a 30 seconds here, uh, Kevin Drum. Can the media succeed without ginning up outrage? Isn't that the the stock and trade rather than talking about things that, as you noted, are going great? Can media succeed? And frankly, can politicians succeed without it? It seems to, to be that anger is what gets folks uh, to the polls. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder about that myself. Um, you know, I I, I, I sort of blame talk radio, uh, uh, present company excluded, of course. Of course, thank um, you. But, uh, you know, conservative talk radio and Fox News for sort of leading the way on this outrage politics. 
And I think as time goes by, I think a lot of other sources, including, you know, uh, those of us on the left, see it happening uh, on our side as well, that we sort of start to realize that if we want to compete, we have to be outraged. And so you're seeing, you're seeing more of it. And, you know, as, as much as some of it is, is, is totally legitimate, yeah, I think there's too much of it. I think sometimes you need to take a step back and realize that not everything is going badly. So the facts would underscore the fact that uh, that, that we're going to be all right, right, Kevin? Everything. Is... I hope so. Okay. Beloved political blogger Kevin Drum from MotherJones.com. Uh, thank you for uh, thank you for this reality check. It is greatly appreciated. We will get back to our outrage, no doubt, on our next program. But uh, until then, Kevin, great speaking with you, my friend. Thanks for joining us. Great to be on. Thanks, Brad. You bet. All right, a quick break, and we are back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. So let us say America can't be so very wrong. (laughs) That's right. Oh, John Wayne can't be so very wrong. What year was it? Any idea, Des, what year that was? No, actually, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, only time uh, for the very quickest of uh, emails here, a listener email in the uh, continuing or the continuing debate over the word quixotic. Uh, You may remember from last week, uh, our listener Nick from uh, Sputnik Radio wrote in to bradcast at bradblog.com when I had a question about how to say it. Is it quixotic? Is it kixotic? He said, no, it comes from Don Quixote. Therefore, it is quixotic or quixotic. Quixotic. Yes, which I kind of disagreed with, uh, but though it makes sense, I've never heard anybody actually say it that way. Uh, Scott B. writes in on the issue to say, Hey, Brad and company, please note that Dictionary.com does this for a living. Your initial presumption of the pronunciation as quixotic was correct, which sounds like this. Quixotic. What is that? Quixotic. Oh, that's how I said it in the first place, isn't it? And just to make sure, Desi Doyne, you check their their British Yeah, I wanted to see if the British had a different pronunciation. It's totally different. Quixotic. See? Completely different. (laughs) Quixotic. Yes, it is. It's quixotic, no matter which way you look at it. Scott B. says, uh, great show. Thanks. You're welcome, Scott B. And my thanks to you and all of our listeners. If you'd like to get your thoughts heard on this program, you can try your luck. You can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. Or you can follow me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at TheBradBlog. My thanks also to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to Kevin Drum of Mother Jones. We will be back with you soon. If you missed any portion of today's program, stop on by bradblog.com. We have this program and all of the others there for you to download for free. All right. We'll be back with you next time. Until then, this has been the good news. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Everybody.